turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hey everyone, I hope that you had a Merry Christmas. I don't know about you, but during the holidays, or after the holidays, I always feel like I'm in a bit of a slump because Christmas is always so much fun, and then I think, wow, that went by fast, and I'm always sad that it's over. But this year, I really don't feel that because this interview has been on the calendar for a few weeks. I'm so excited to be joined in studio today by Monica Harris. Monica is the author of this great book that I read called The Illusion of Division. And some of you may remember that she was on the show a few weeks ago. She told me that she would be in L.A., so I seized on the opportunity to talk with her face-to-face again. I'm Julie Hartman, and this is Timeless. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Timeless and the Julie Hartman YouTube channel in general. Just as a reminder that in addition to Timeless, you can catch my show with Dennis Prager, which premieres every Monday on this channel at 1 o'clock Pacific, 4 o'clock Eastern. It is aptly called Dennis and Julie. And then, of course, Timeless is Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays on this channel. And in case you don't want to watch, you can listen to it on Apple and Spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts. As I said, I'm so excited that Monica Harris is here. I'm about to give your intro, but I feel like we can even just scrap it and dive right in. No, because we'll go ahead and get the intro for folks who don't Yes, know. well, exactly. But <laughs> for those of you who don't know, you should go back and watch the interview that we did a few weeks oh, ago. You can do that. You can do that. But for those of you who didn't see it, Monica Harris is an author and lawyer. After 20 years of working in the corporate world, Monica decided to make a bold life change, which led to her writing this book, The Illusion of division. Monica now lives in Montana and she operates her own law firm and she also has a blog called Let's Get Unplugged, which you can find at the aptly named letsgetunplugged.com. Monica also serves as the executive director of the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which we will be definitely discussing today because we were going to do it last time, but we just got chatting. We just kept. And then before I knew it, Sean was saying to me, we got to wrap up. Yeah. So welcome, Monica. Thank you for being here. It is wonderful to be here, Julie. Such a pleasure. I always love talking to you and, and getting into our cocktail conversation. Is yes, that's what Monica said to me before cocktails. before the last interview. Yes. She said, I'm, I'm cocktail casual, and I, and I thought I loved that. That's right, like just chatting with you at a party. You know, I've learned that over the past year of doing this job. I think I used to be very, like... I don't know, stiff and had all my questions prepared. And it's so much better when, as we were saying before this, you just forget that the microphone is there. Right, yeah. Sometimes it can get you into a little bit of trouble, but, but that's always the goal. Totally. So, gosh, I, I don't even know where to, where to dive in. I, I, have, I told Monica I have three things written down from last time. We've talked about class. Yeah. We've talked about excellent sheep. Yes. And then, of, to- of course, we have to talk about fair. We've got to talk about fair. But first, so you're, you're in L.A. visiting family, right? Yes. yes. And so... You live in Montana. How often do you come here and visit, or do you stay in Montana most of the time? I would say before the pandemic. So I'm an entertainment lawyer by, by profession, mm-hmm. and but most of my clients, as you can imagine, aren't in Montana. They're yeah. in L.A. They're some in New York, but mostly in L.A. 
before the pandemic started, I would come out maybe like every three or four months. And I got to admit, it was not pleasurable. I mean, LA's changed a lot. It's not the place I remember. Even when, even before I left, it wasn't a place I was wild about. But you know what's happened like in the past decade. It's just, it's changed so much. Exactly. So many ways, so many levels. So before the pandemic, I was coming out a lot more often. But pandemic hits and the only silver lining, the only good thing to come out of the pandemic, in my opinion, is everyone's on Zoom. It's such a familiarity with working remotely. So um, I have been working remotely for like about almost a decade now. And it was a little unusual, but post-pandemic, it became more the custom, the norm. So now I don't have to come to L.A. maybe maybe once a year. Now, our family, my partner, you know, her family's um, still in Southern California, too. Uh, my folks are in Southern California. So we still come to see our family, like, maybe a couple times a year and try to weave some work in there. But generally speaking, I would say our trips are becoming fewer and far between and more expensive, too. I mean, who can afford oh, gosh, to come I here? Know. It's crazy. Well, the reason why I asked, and you, and you just hit on it in, in your answer, is that I can imagine once you've become accustomed to the beautiful Montana unplugged lifestyle. Totally simple lifestyle. Right? Coming yes. back here must kind of be like, oh, maybe we've left that in the past and should stick to Montana. I don't know. No, it's, it, I mean, look, you, you, this is exactly what we were dealing with. Like when we first moved, you can imagine you're coming from this huge city and, and to a little town of like maybe 3,500 people pre-pandemic, maybe 5,000 now. But it's a completely different way of life. And it took some adjustment because you don't have all the bells and whistles. You don't have a big mall. I mean, your life is pretty much an Amazon if you want anything, right? Mm-hmm. Not No ethnic restaurants to speak of except maybe a Mexican restaurant. So your options are pretty limited. And you learn to just do with less. And you're, you sort of focus on what you need, not on what you want. Mm-hmm. And that was initially, I think, kind of uncomfortable. And there was more of sort of a yearning to visit California in those early years, get back to what we knew and the familiar and like, oh, look at, look at everything we have. And, and that was sort of wistful. But as time went by, as my partner and I always like to say, California changed and we changed and we found ourselves moving in different directions. Um, so I would say about five years into our relocation, we started to not want to visit California as much. We'd come back and we're like, Hmm, don't like what's happened here. Oh my God, look at all these homeless people are, wow. I mean, why are we paying this much for a cup, for a cappuccino? And we come back to Montana and we feel like, oh wow, this feels a lot better. I think we made the smart choice. And the choice Mm -hmm. has just been, it's just felt smarter with every passing year. And then post pandemic, it's just like, I can't believe we ever lived here. It's just almost unrecognizable. So a lot of people say, were you psychic? You guys are like really smart to move. No, I think we were just following our take hearts. Take credit for it. Say, no, yeah, no, I no, am. we're not. No, can't take credit for that. We were just following our hearts, and it's just a gamble that paid off. I think that's the best way to put it. I want to make clear to the audience that this is kind of the basis of Monica's book, the fact that yes. you were here in L.A., you were working in corporate entertainment law. In the grind. Law, in the grind. In the grind yeah. And you decided to go with your partner and your son to Montana. And I just, yeah. I love this story because I love when people kind of reveal something that shakes up your expectations of what it would be like. Yeah. And you talked about how when people, when you told people that you were moving to Montana, they said to you, oh my gosh, they hate black people in Montana. They all vote they, for, they they hate, Republicans. Yeah, they're all yeah. white supremacist Republicans. They hate yeah. gay people. And you went and wrote 
this great book, The Illusion of Division, that so many of these divisions that we focus so much on and that are frothed up in this country, yeah. not just, you know, race and, and sexuality, but, you right. know, vac- vaccinated versus unvaccinated status, the way you vote, you you say that a lot of it is an illusion and we actually have way more in common. Distortions of our reality is, is right. the uh, way I like to put it. I think that's been the most unexpected discovery is that it feels to me in more and more that there's been this distortion of our reality on many different levels. And this distortion has led us to make, or maybe the distortion is as a result of, these assumptions that we're making about people we've never met, mm-hmm. we've never actually spent time with, or don't know much about at all. We're making these assumptions based on what other people we trust, people in the media, um, uh, influencers, maybe politicians or elected leaders we trust, they present this this perception of reality. And be, if we believe the perception, then their re, the reality that they're presenting becomes our reality. So I think what I've learned over the past decade or so is that we, reality is very malleable. It is whatever we create or we allow other people to create for us. And I think that right now we are living in a manufactured reality that's created an artificial sense of division, a sense of division that absent other forces, absent the media, absent what we're hearing on social media, absent what party leaders are telling us, we would soon realize that we have so much more in common than we think. What holds us back is that so many people that I meet on the left and the right are unwilling to Take a chance. Like we took a chance. We left a blue bubble. And Boy, we did you to, take a chance? Yeah, we went to a place that's ninety percent, you know, white, very Republican, very heterosexual, and I think it defied our expectations. And we were rewarded for that um, taking that chance because we saw, oh my God, this is not the reality that we were presented. This is a completely different reality. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people in Montana who would probably match the assumption that a lot of folks in blue states, you know, have. Um, you know, I, I, I can't say that we've never met anyone who's not racist, not overtly racist, but, you know, the kind of people who, you know, really don't want to have much to do with you, give you a kind of look that, you know, makes you feel like you don't really belong here. But my point is those encounters are few and far between. And what I would encourage people to do is instead of just assuming that people are going to treat you a certain way if you go to a certain place, take a chance, open yourself up and embrace the adventure and i think you will be surprised by what you experience i think you'll find that people that you are that you fear aren't nearly as scary as you think um and i i also feel that there are forces in our country that are invested in making us believe that we don't have a lot in common and that probably goes to your question about about class you know when i was growing up in the 70s and 80s it was a very different experience for a young black woman. Um, I would go into a store in West L.A. on rare occasions with my mom, and we would be followed around uh, by shopkeepers. You know, they were, I think they genuinely thought that we would, mm. you know, we'd steal something. Um, I often, as I said in my book, I went to a private school in Pasadena that's literally a stone's throw here from your studio. Uh, extremely wealthy families. And when I graduated in uh, my senior year, our party was held at the Jonathan Club in Malibu. And at the time, 1984, 
there were only white people allowed into the club, not Jews, not Asians, God, not Latinos. 1984? Not yes, wow. 1984. Tom Bradley Four was mayor of white. Yeah, exactly. This isn't like, you know, Jim Crow, like 50 years ago. It's only 1984. And in L.A. And in L.A., a progressive city. Right. So, I mean, people wouldn't expect that. But they had to get a special dispensation to let anyone but a wasp into that club. So I know I, I have a very visceral remind, or feeling and experience with racism that a lot of people here, um, they, you know, a lot of people now, they talk about microaggressions. This was truly a macroaggression. I mean, this was, it was horrible. And... This is the life that I think a lot of black people in my generation experience, but it's changed. It's changed significantly over the years. I mean, the fact that I was like a gay black woman running a um, business affairs department at VH1, I mean, that would not have happened in 1984. It probably wouldn't have even happened in 1990 when I was at a law firm and I'm sitting there with three black women in my office and the white partner walks by, does a double take and says, what are you guys doing, plotting a revolution? I mean, that stuff would not even happen. Mm. You just wow. can't even imagine happening. So I've seen so much progress. And I think the danger we face is that we forget the progress we've made. And a lot of people of color, particularly black people, are captured in this mindset of like, well, we have so much further to go. We're still not entirely equal. There's still some disparity. They forget that, you know, what life used to be like for our parents and our grandparents my mom, who grew up in Memphis and who wasn't allowed to get on the bus with, with white students, who had to sit in the colored person section of the, of the, the local theater when she wanted to watch, you know, far, far from the fire exit. This was the life we lived. And now we've progressed and we're becoming, we're, we're, we're living lives that are so much similar in so many ways and so many more opportunities than we've had. And we can't see that the biggest thing that's dividing us now isn't race. What's really dividing us is class. When I went to Montana, I had never seen so many poor white people in my life. I met, well, my son went to school with kids who, you know, they had a, you know, like one of his friends, their family had like been evicted and they were living in their car, like at some point. Um, he was invited to a, uh, a birthday party of one of his friends, you know, young, young white boy. And uh, had a great time at the party. It was in a trailer park. First time I'd really actually gone into a, a double wide. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we're like walking out and we look at the bottom of our, we're like, what, what does that smell? And we look at the bottom of our shoes and, you know, there's like dog crap on it. And it didn't come from the yard. It was actually in my son's friend's home. So that's the kind of, that's true poverty. And it's not, it's not unusual in Montana. I mean, there's a lot of wealth there. But like I said, there's, there's a lot, not, in a state that's 90% white, there's a lot of people who are dying, a lot of kids who are dying from fentanyl. The fentanyl crisis is real there. There's like, the suicide rate there is higher than any other, con- any other state in the country. Um, you know, just a lot of folks who are struggling. And it hit me that if these people are struggling and they're not black, then there's something else going on. They're struggling for other reasons. And that's that's when I began to pay more attention to not systemic racism, but systemic classism. These are the, the factors that are keeping people of all races from getting ahead and achieving the American dream that was possible for me as a black woman. I mean, I went to Princeton and Harvard, like you said. Um, I can count on one, one, no, three fingers, 
the number of people in Montana that I know who can afford to send their kids to Princeton or Harvard. And they're white. But it's not an option for them. It's done. So is it racism? No. There's something bigger going on here. So much to respond to. By the way, I'm realizing I'm clutching onto your oh, book. <laughs> I want to put it here so everybody can see. It's just such a good book. I, you might want to lean on it. I want to hold it. So much, so much to say, but I'm really glad that you brought up this last point about how many middle class and certainly um, lower class families in the United States can't afford to send their kids to Ivy League schools. Because when I went to Harvard and I just graduated yes. a year and a half ago, and I'd be so curious. A year and a half ago, wow. I know. Well, it's going by. <laughs> I, I already feel so old. When I passed the year mark, it was cool to be able to go, oh, less than a year ago. Because then it felt like, eh, like fresh, if I'm fresh, yeah. you know, making mistakes in life, I can say I'm still fresh out of college. I'm not fresh out of college anymore. Yeah. But putting that aside, I, when I went to Harvard, I was really expecting to meet all different kinds of people. Yeah. And in a, in a way I did, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, one of my best friends in the world, my, my roommate is from Kazakhstan. My other senior year roommate was from Kenya. Yeah. I mean, I, I met friends from all over the world. I can't say that ideologically there was a lot of diversity, sure. but internationally there was, but there was no, there was very little class diversity. Yes. There were a ton of people who were extremely wealthy, definitely yes. upper class. Yes. But there, there was no, and then you'd have some people who had these crazy, really miraculous, amazing stories. Like, you know, they grew up homeless and then they, you know, got, mm-hmm. got a scholarship and came to Harvard. So you'd kind of have these two extremes, yeah. but there was no middle class. class. Did you find that when you were at Princeton? I did find that. And, and, and I, I, what surprised me, because I've been tracking the, I think, the, the student body of Princeton and Harvard Law over the years. And it seems to me that there are, this dynamic you're talking about has been accelerating because I was from I was from the middle class. Actually, I was from the working class. And there were some, and particularly black folks that were like me from the working class and some, some white also. But, and, and, you know, there was a chunk in the middle class. But over time, it seems that as tuition has gotten more expensive, obviously, there's like, I think there were studies done that at Princeton, like 60% of the, in my, in my, you know, cohort, 60% of the student body came from the upper middle class, but I think now it's something like 78 or 80% are from the upper middle class. I forget the, forget the stats, but it's exactly what, you, what, you're, what you're pointing to is that Princeton used to be, and I think Harvard as well, used to be institutions that were open to a broad range of classes, even though heavily weighted towards the upper middle class, but it seems to be almost futile now that there really is just those very few a handful of folks who may have gotten uh, basketball scholarships or music scholarships or things like that, or maybe an academic, look, look, talking about the academic scholarship, again, coming from the working class, I got a, uh, a scholarship because I wanted to be pre-med. It was like $4,000, which was a lot back then in 1984. So my parents related. They're like, $4,000 off tuition. The tuition was like all of like, I think 16, which seemed like a lot then, not so much now. But they're like, oh, we only have to pay 12. Well, what Princeton did they actually reduced a grant oh. that I had. So oh, wow. literally they reduced it by $4,000. So again, it was a wash. So it did me no good to get the scholarship. So what I found by talking to a lot of kids there is you had to be exceptionally poor, not just poor. It's interesting. The, the miracle, the miraculous stories yeah, of people over so homeless. Extreme. Yeah, so extreme. So the middle class folks like me from those, these families 
we could not catch a break because there was abs- almost no way for us to reduce our tuition without, we just had to get loans. So I was loaned up completely when I came out of um, Princeton, loaned up out of, you know, Harvard Law School. So, I mean, this is, again, this goes to the issue of class because even though I had these degrees, I was on a completely different footing than my white peers who, they, they graduate with no loans. I mean, totally mm-hmm. cash paid. I mean, I don't know your situation, but they were totally cash paid. I was in debt for something like easily 150000 But again, this was in like 1991, like mm-hmm. college and law school. You try getting your foot in this world, even like with a, you know, a pretty decent job at a corporate law firm, you try starting out with that much debt and trying to catch up. You're always behind the eight ball. So it's it it, it so it, it is the class issue is very real, and it's not just for black people. There were lots of white people, you know, in the middle class. Not a lot, but there were a good number of white people who were also in the same situation. And now I look at I was just talking to my partner the other day about like how much it would take if our son wanted to go to college. Incidentally, even if he could get into Harvard, we would never send him there. I mean, mm. there's no oh, we got to talk about that brainwashed. Yeah, but. You know, it would be something like $350,000 for Princeton and another $500,000 for law school. Like, we're looking at almost a million dollars. Who can afford that? So so anyway, again, I've come up a couple of notches in terms of class. Mm-hmm. And yet I still can't afford to send no, it's my crazy. kids to the, yeah. It, it is truly crazy. And and I think you are absolutely right. I mean, no doubt the biggest component of this is financial. Yeah. That people in the middle class and as you say, even upper class, it, it is backbreaking to be able to afford to go to these institutions. But I also think there's another reason why you don't see as many middle class students at Harvard. I think it's because from an admissions officer's point of view, there's nothing that, quote unquote, extraordinary about these individuals. Interesting. Because as I said, we have these extremes. You know, you have the the miracle story of, of people who grew up with huh. very little means and then fought their way, yeah. God bless them, you know, to, to get to a place like Harvard. Yeah. And then, you know, you have the, the people on the other end who've had every advantage and have made the most out of, you know, right. those advantages and scored, you know, done incredibly well academically or sports-wise or in music, yeah. et cetera. But then there are these people in the middle class who and I think there's this greater uh, scorn for these individuals in America. They're they're Middle America, overwhelmingly white Christian. You know, these have become like yeah, dirty yeah. words. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. and you know they go to school and they do well and they go home and they go to their church and they maybe volunteer at their church. Big deal. Yeah. What's what's so you know what's the story? Yeah. I think and I could be totally wrong. It's totally my speculation. Well, I mean, I think that would fit into, I never thought about that, but I, I, I think you, you might be onto something. It might fit into this idea of schools have started to glorify people who are oppressed. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, yes. Who are typically very diverse. And I think that um, people who, that you described, the, the, the classic um, folks in middle America, and I would say black or white, I mean, the people, what right. you just described, it would certainly fit for my family. My, my folks worked for the um, um, uh, the county. My dad was a sheriff, LA County Sheriff. My mother was like a child support representative. So they're just solidly in the middle. Nothing extraordinary about them. But they weren't oppressed. They weren't victims. They were people who worked extremely hard. 
um, had a solid moral grounding. My mother still was and still is very religious. My father, not so much, but, you know. <laughs> um, and they didn't want handouts. And they would be, I think, insulted if you even looked at them and assumed that they were victims. Interesting story. Um, so I went to this school, Pasadena Poly, like I said, private school not far from here. I swam there all the time. You saw, okay, you know it. Nice, yes. nice, nice school. Very nice. So good pa- pool. Yeah, good pool. <laughs> That's the extent that I, to which I know it. Um, so this was like again in the eighties, and tuition was like five five hundred. It was like four or five thousand dollars a year, which was a lot back then, mm-hmm. especially for people who had county jobs. Right. My parents were approached by the administrators, and they're like, you know what, We've, we, we really want Monica to come here. We want her to come so much, because this was a time when they're like, you know, they were really trying to, like, rule out the carpet to, this is the beginning of, like, the affirmative action era, you know. So we want Monica to come. She's, she, I, I aced all the tests, and they really wanted me, and they were willing to give me a scholarship. Not a full ride, but 50%. My mother wanted to take it, my, and my father said, No. Hmm. Not going to do it because we don't want the handouts. We don't want to owe them anything. We don't want anyone to see you as a pity case. And so my father and my mom took out loans, and my dad worked a second job. Wow. But did all that because, you know, it, and you think about it, I don't think it's something a lot of people would do today because everyone's looking for, hey, what can I get for free? What can I get without working for it? So anyway, all in the way of saying that, a lot of people in the middle class that you're describing um, are from that same, I'm not a victim mentality. Yes. I work for yes. what I, yeah, you know, I want to feel that I, I'm rewarded for the work I do. Um, and I don't think that that's something that these schools value now. I don't think that's a mentality that they value now. See, as you were talking, I was thinking about like the perspective essay from mm. someone in the middle class that they would write to, you know, to to Harvard or the, the common app, whatever. Yeah. Right. I've, it's only been five years. I can't remember what's the forum you write these essays, yeah. but I was thinking like, what would a middle-class American write versus what would, you know, someone who's really trying to put forth, you know, the story. Right. And it's like, if you write, a, you, you get rewarded for these sensational yes. stories and right. then people contrive them, yes. you know? And again, as you were saying earlier, I, of course, of course, know that, that racism and homophobia and all these things exist. Yeah. By the way, I am steeped in this conservative world. I've never met a conservative who denies the existence of these things. It's, Isn't it's that crazy? It's insane. It's like, <laughs> I mean, there are so many myths about conservatives, but yeah. that's the biggest one. Like somehow, you know, people who are conservative deny the existence of racism. Of course, there's racism. But that they're all pro-life. Or, or, right, yeah. right. Yeah. But, you know. I I see often, I would see this in college, people contriving these grievances and these narratives of horrible things that have happened. And then you think back to the, you know, the way that these these college essays are are, you know, structured, like talk about the most impactful thing yes. in your life. And people use that as the opportunity to sell this big story. And if you're a middle class you know, American who, as you're saying, doesn't, you know, view themselves as a victim, has bourgeoisie values, you know, as a church going kind of regular, I think in the best sense person. And you don't, you don't think in terms of concocting that sensational story. Are you going to be rewarded for your, your essay? I don't think so either. I don't think so. Now see, I feel like I'm dating myself again, because when I was at, at this private school, Pasadena Poly, we had a college counselor. Never forget her. She's, 
Her name was Don Cobb. Wonderful woman. Mine was named Monica. Oh, no way. Yes. Oh, that's funny. And I accidentally one time called her Momica. Momica. Wait, <laughs> she was did... like my school mom. So you went to, you went to school in the Palisades. Okay. No, I didn't. I went to school in Hancock Park. Oh, Hancock. Yeah. Which was Marlboro. This? Marlboro. Oh my God. Okay. Did you so, swim yes. there too? No, I, I did not <laughs> swim. But I had a, I, you know, it's interesting. A Latin club, and we had a, um, some competitions with Marlboro. Anyway, so we our college counselor. The thing that she would always tell us is. You want to be well-rounded on your application. Hmm. That was what was, I mean, you had to have killer SATs. That was like, that was really good too. But being well-rounded and being incredibly diverse in the way we're not talking about diversity now, but diverse in terms of like the classes you took, your extracurricular activity was all about the extracurricular activities. You know, be on the student body. I was student body president my sophomore year. I managed to get that in an all-white school. Imagine that, or almost all-white school. Mm. Um, I was an American field service student to the Dominican Republic when I was um, a junior. I took a lot of AP. I, I, I stood out because most of my uh, classmates were taking you know, like five or six courses. I took seven courses, and three of them were AP. I was trying to like just really spread myself out there and do like, um, you know, I competed in essay contests. You know what I'm saying? I just... Yeah. I wanted to make myself as interesting as possible and to have all these different facets of my um, personality that I was presenting. And I don't know what the criteria for essay ne- essays are now. I suspect it's, I, you're probably right. But what I chose to write my essay for, for Princeton and all this colleges work on, on was my trip to the Dominican Republic. And it's, a, it's an experience I write about in this book where I made my first the closest friend, the best friend I made, at, you know, in, in in youth before I went to college was, you know, a young woman who from Virginia, who um, I've since lost touch with. But we were like, I think I may have had a crush on her too, to be honest. <laughs> but we um we came from completely different worlds, you know. Mm-hmm. And she was a southerner. I'm just like this this black girl from 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 L.A. And we we had nothing in common, but. In those two and a half or three months in the Dominican Republic, the one thing we did have in common was that we were Americans thrown into this completely foreign place, you know, with limited knowledge of Spanish. Our Spanish is like, you know, like broken high school <laughs> Spanish. And, you know, we had the same love for pop culture. You know, we were both really into the police. MTV was just coming out at that time. We were both like really into music videos. We were both missing the same things about home. We were both talking about, like, our dreams. You know, she was getting ready to go to UVA. Oh, well, she didn't know what UVA at the time, but that right. was her dream. I was dreaming of the Ivy Leagues. We were talking about, like, what we hope college is going to be like, and we wanted to – we were bonding about the things that made us human. Yes. And that, that was what I wrote my essay about, like, just this idea of, like, coming together with people from different cultures and different – just demographics and finding out that, God, you have so much in common. So it's funny, you meant to, didn't even really think about it until just now, but even even as a kid, I was like sort of like open to this idea of what do we have in common? What what can we do to bring ourselves closer to each other instead of, you know, finding things that separate us? And I don't think that that's something that is emphasized strongly enough in uh, schools now. Um, that comes with diversity of that comes with an appreciation for true diversity. True diversity. True authentic diversity that schools don't, they don't embrace anymore. I want to talk about your excellent sheep thesis because I related to it 
so much. We were just saying. It's off. not mine. William DeRisa. Well, yes, yes, that's right. Yes, he I was. I read his book. Yes. Yes. Uh, he he was a uh, God. I always get his name wrong. I'm I'm glad you said it. I think it's William, William DeRisa. I always say Duresowitz. Okay, but close, close. No, no. I'm I'm going to go with with Monica. <laughs> but he wrote this. For those who are unaware, he wrote this great book, Excellent Sheep, and he was a Yale uh, undergraduate admissions officer. And, and a professor of English, I think. Yes. I think it is. Yes. yes. And he wrote about how a lot of the people who were applying and then the people who matriculated were these, what he called, excellent sheep, in that they kind of followed the, the right trajectory. Um, and I really related to that. Oh, my God, it, yes. we, were, we were talking off the air. I, I often say, everyone to my guests, I say, we should stop talking because the best <laughs> stuff is off the air and then I wish it were recorded. This is one such yes. instance. We were uh, talking about, I said to you, I feel like I was an excellent sheep. And you said, you too. And we've, what did you say? We've grazed away we've from We've grazed herd. away. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't have, we couldn't have made it through Harvard and, and, and Princeton if we weren't excellent sheep. Yes. Um, and so, I, you know what? I think of... I was, for years, I'd had this theory that, um, before I read the book, I'm like, there's something wrong with the way that I was taught to think in college. And it took me a while to, to really appreciate what the problem was. And it started to manifest in the corporate world where I you know, met other people from these really nice colleges right. and law schools. And it occurred to me that, yeah, they're just really high-achieving followers. They're, they're supposed to be leaders, but they're really not thinking like leaders. They're, they're, they're thinking, they're not just thinking inside the box. They refuse to look at the fact that the box is falling apart or like, why is the box even there? You know, forget the box. Um, and I, the box to me is like a sort of a metaphor for the system, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I read his book, I, wait, just back up again. So I had this idea when I was, um, I, I thought, it's weird. When I was in college, I would study for exams, but the exams I did the best on, and this is particularly true in law, particularly true at law school, the exams I did the best on was when I just mimicked what the professor told me in class. So you'd read a book, totally. you'd read a textbook, and, you know, you'd like, you know, have the class discussions. You may have your own text, your own t- uh, uh, sort of take on what you read. But you'd have the class discussion, and it would be very clear what the professor thought. You know, he'd sort yes. of like toss out a question, get some answers. You could see some answers, the answers that some students gave, he sort of poo-pooed or rejected or didn't follow through. But others he really resonated with, and he pursued those, and you're like, oh, that's what you want to hear. And then you take notes. That would be a bolded underline because when you're in college, I'm just going to be perfectly frank, and especially in, in, at Ivy League schools, it's all about the GPA, Oh, because the GPA course. is what gets you to, you know, law school or business the, the school, next or school. The stepping next stone. Two. You've got to. Yes. It's all about achieving. Totally. Oh, um, gosh. Right. You know, we could talk for hours right. about this. You don't want to. You do not want to risk your GPA on a course that may even get you a B. You know, you need some. You may take a course, a chance on a course that gets you a B plus, but you're looking for A minuses, A's. You want to rock out that GPA. Anyway, so it makes you very risk averse for one thing, and when you're risk averse, it means. You don't want to go against whatever the the professor's narrative is. That's mm-hmm. essentially what it is, a narrative. So we were essentially like, I trained myself to regurgitate what I was, t- you know, like a baby bird, like, oh, you know, regurgitate what you're told. That's a visual I won't That's be able a, to get yeah, intellectual regurgitation. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and years later, it, it occurred to me, like, I was getting really good grades, but 
was I really using critical thinking skills? Was I really thinking? I wasn't thinking out of the box. I was like, this was the box. I was told what to put in the box. I'm like, I can put the stuff in the box. Really, here's the box. Yeah. 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 And you're rewarded for that. And that's not, unfortunately, and I don't know if many people who did go to these schools realize, a lot of people trust these really well-groomed folks from elite schools because they think they're so smart. They think they're experts. They think that they're critical thinkers. They think that they're smarter than they are because they went to these schools. But that's not the case. In fact, I have noticed in recent years that there's actually an inverse, a direct inverse relationship between the amount of education you have and the amount of common sense you have and your ability to, you know, solve problems and to be resourceful and to use critical thinking, just the common sense. And people that, yeah, the, the people from elite institutions, are, they don't have that because they're just regurgitating. And totally. I, yeah, and like the baby bird. Like the baby bird. And <laughs> no, we're, being mis, we're being misled into thinking these people know what they're doing. And in many cases, they're just regurgitating from what, what someone you know, else has said, whether it's maybe folks in the media or maybe even like people fire up the food chain. They're just yes. regurgitating narratives. Yes. You know, I have started to say, I no longer refer to people who went to these, you know, Ivy League undergraduate colleges and, and uh, uh, law schools and business schools. I no longer refer to them as educated. I refer yes. to them as credentialed. That and there's a so difference. Yes. There is such a difference between, yes. between being educated and credentialed. Yes. You can be very, very, very educated and have no credentials. Or you can have a lot of credentials and not be very educated. So I've, I've started to use that. You know, yes. I think I, we, we may have talked about this. I don't think so, though, when, when we were last uh, talking just about a month ago. But I, when I was a senior in college, wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal called Harvard Students Are COVID Sheep. So I didn't exactly <laughs> I mince my that. words. Yes. I, I wasn't subtle. And I wrote, so I graduated in 2022. And yeah. we had... So I so I was sent home from college in the middle of my sophomore year because which was, of which was 2020. Oh wow! And that's when I be I was liberal, and that's when I became conservative because it was the whole Black Lives Matter riot summer. It was the whole COVID summer. Oh yeah, that was that okay. was quite a summer. And so and that's how I found Dennis Prager, and uh, it was it was a whole journey. It was a wild few months, but oh. changed my life. It brought brought me right here. Before we continue, I want to tell you about my pillow. I use many my pillow products. I walk into work every day wearing the my slippers and then I quickly change into heels. I sleep on the my pillow in the Giza Dream bed sheets and I use my towels among other products and you can get many of these products at a discount if you use the promo code Hartman. MyPillow's latest deal is the sale of the year. For a limited time, you'll get 60% off of the aforementioned Giza Dream Bed Sheets that comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. You'll get a set for as low as $39.99 with the promo code Hartman. Just go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code Hartman or call one 800 566 66745 and use the promo code Hartman. Along with this offer, you'll get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, the MyPillow towel sets, and more. But I was sent home uh, due to the COVID lockdowns when I was a sophomore. My entire junior year, I lost. I wasn't allowed to go back to campus because of 
how, uh, you know, apparently threatening COVID was to, to people my age. We, I lost my entire junior year at Harvard. Where did you study then? I, Zoom. Zoom school. Zoom? You Zoomed Harvard? Your third year of Harvard? Yes, I Zoomed my entire junior year of Harvard. I, I didn't step foot For on campus. Tuition? Oh, increase. Two <laughs> percent increase. Oh, my God. I know. It was insane. <laughs> and so then we get back senior year. And I'm like, when I got back senior year, Monica, I was like, and I, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm studious. I'm focused. I'm like, I am going to, like, jump from the roofs. I'm going to party. It's my last year of college. You know, I yeah, missed yeah, yeah. a third of my Harvard experience to do this. I was so excited to just go off. Yeah. And we had these crazy COVID restrictions. Even when I was back for my senior year, we had to wear masks everywhere we went. But it was, but they were irrational. Like when you were getting food in the dining hall, you could, you had to wear your masks. But then when you sat to take it off, you could take off the mask. And it was like, oh, does COVID only live where the food is? It doesn't live where you eat. Like it's crazy. And then it was like, you know, you can only have 10 people with a mask in your room, but then you'd be in these lecture halls with all these people where it was just, it was uneven. And it just, and I actually got in trouble with my opera teacher because I had the audacity to blow my nose one time behind your mask uh, i took down my mask and blew my nose and i was just like screw this pa- pardon me everyone but yeah. screw this i was so mad but the thing that made me more disheartened than the irrational covid restrictions themselves was the reaction of the student body or non-reaction the, or the yes the non-reaction yeah. and i wrote in the journal i said that we had this zombie-like acquiescence yeah. to these COVID restrictions. We all knew they made no sense. We yeah. all wanted to have fun our senior year. Did you really know? I mean, did you talk to people? I would. And so really? I went on this expedition where I would talk. I mean, I was very vocal oh, about, sure, sure. about what I thought. And I'd go up to people and I'd go, what do you think about this? And they'd go, yeah, it's crazy, but whatever. And there was this, there was this weird resignation. And I was thinking, wow, where's your fire? Like, where's your anger? This is our, you know, this is our final year in the case of the, oh, my sure, fellow sure. seniors. Why aren't you upset? And I realized, and this is what I, what I wrote in the article, is that we have just followed the path mm-hmm. and we have always done exactly what the adults wanted us to do to succeed to succeed yeah. we regurgitated it for the third time like the baby bird mm-hmm. you know okay mm-hmm. we'll acquiesce to the covid mm-hmm. restrictions mm-hmm. i'll write exactly on the paper what you want me to write mm-hmm. i'll you know and i thought this a lot in high school i mean i yeah, had yeah, yeah. no social life i i just i really i studied all i did was swim to get into college and i realized we just view this as another thing that we've got to you know march in lockstep to in order to attain our next credential and yeah. please the adults that's how tall it is yeah and so you're right that many of these individuals are not leaders they're followers and pers- they have to be followers to get into and maintain their status at these universities and advance to the next stepping stone really disciplined followers they can't yes. be sloppy followers they have to be counted upon to just stay lockstep and it's see and, and i i there was no COVID, obviously, when I went to school, there was mm-hmm. no Black Lives Matter. But I can see, looking back now, the bigger picture. Uh, 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 and I, uh, let me just also say, I don't think that this is historically the way students were educated and groomed at Harvard and other Ivy League institutions. Yeah, when did it change, do you think, and I, why? I don't know why it changed. I mean, I'm not, I won't venture into conspiracy theories about why. Um, I, I just, looking back, though, I can see that what I was experiencing laid the groundwork for what's happening now. When you have a group of people who aren't thinking outside the box and aren't asking questions like you're, thinking, like you're talking about, they're not pressing their professors. They're not willing to challenge their professors. They're not willing to um, give answers on an exam that deviate from what they know will be accepted. 
then they're laying themselves not just up, laying themselves setting themselves up not just for a sort of like academic indoctrination but social indoctrination too and i think that's where black lives matter comes in they're letting these institutions sort of like determine how they react to to anything in life whether it's covid or to um a social disruption or a, or a, a social, socioeconomic disruption or police brutality, anything, something along those, those lines. So I think that um, it's interesting you said that they would, your peers would notice that there's something wrong, but they would just go along with it and they wouldn't feel yes. free to challenge. It was creepy. But yet, and too, but yet, I guess, I'm just guessing, you, didn't, you may not have been around them during the Black Lives Matter movement, you were probably, you know, you weren't on campus then, were you? Or were you there? During? I was not on campus. You were no. not on campus. It was that summer. We were it was that home. summer. Yeah. But I bet you those same people were riled up enough yes. to go out and march in the streets. Because the adults told them because to be. Because the adults told them. So yes. they're being trained how to react to situations. So it's, it is, it's very zombie-like, you know, they can, and, and like you said, it's really, really frightening. You would expect this, and not that it's right, but you would expect this from people at the lowest levels of society, and when I mean the lowest levels, people who aren't expected to lead, people who are supposed to be followers. I mean, every society has to have leaders, and there has to be people who follow them. Right. Absolutely. So you would right. expect followers and that class to, to behave this way. What's shocking is when you have leaders behaving as followers. Because then the, the, this begs the question, who are the leaders following? Hmm. Boy, we don't that, know. Boy, is that... I wonder that with Claudine Gay. With... Oh, Miss Gay. Yes. How much longer does, do you think she has at Harvard? Hmm. <laughs> it's really interesting. I'm of two minds. Half of me thinks, you know, five more minutes. But they've stuck by her this long, and they're going to really look bad if they ditch her. Well, did you see Bill Ackman's recent tweet? I think those was... Which one? <laughs> oh, right, right. The he's recent, going and going. Which every... recent of one of thousand. Yeah. No, but he says... Okay, look, I... In full disclosure, who knows if he's right and who knows if his source is right. He has it from highly placed sources um, um, uh, that are Harvard Corp adjacent. I just found out that Harvard's a corporation. Oh, they call it the Board of Overseers. The Board of Overseers. Isn't that Orwellian? Extremely. Yeah. That they have asked her to resign and she has refused. And she's retained her own counsel and threatened litigation. And we don't know if this is true, but this is what Ackman says. So that would give credence to your theory that... They can't afford to get rid of her. She's going to have to leave on her own, and who knows if and when that will happen. What do you think? I think she has no incentive to leave. I would like to think that even if she believes that she's totally in the right and that she should have, there's no reason for her to step down, if she truly loves the institution, and more importantly, if she truly cares about the students that she's intended to serve and to lead, she would spare Harvard any further shame, controversy, and disgrace and just step down. That's what I would hope. I don't know Claudine well enough to know if she will do that, but if I were in that position... Do you know her at all? I do not know. Do not know Colin. Never had the pleasure of meeting her, but I do know that if I were in that position, I mean, I, mean, I think I would, I would take my ego. This, this situation requires taking your ego, removing your ego, and just saying, okay, let's, what's, what's best for everyone else? And I think what's best is for Harvard to get out of the headlines as soon as possible because as, as long as she stays there, Harvard's going to just stay in the headlines. Mm. And that's a, sh- that's a shame. 
You know, I was listening to a commentator. She's on in Boston. Her name is Grace Curley. She's with the mm-hmm. Howie Carr Radio Network. I discovered her and I, I listened to her sometimes. She's really funny. Wow. One of the things that she said recently was, she said, I don't want Claudine Gay to resign. I want her to stay because I want to know what Harvard is. This, this is, well, Harvard oh, is a person, yeah, but this yeah, is yeah, who yeah. or what Harvard is. These are the kinds of people who, and, and their actions that they reward. And so I want to look at an institution and I want the people leading that, rep- that institution to truly represent the institution. And she said, say what you want about Claudine Gay. I don't, I don't like her at all, but I'm, I'm glad that she's the president because it shows what Harvard is. It shows that there's a cancer in Harvard. Right. But, it, and it's great that we've finally seen that. Right. But we can't let the cancer stay there. I mean, I, mean, I totally gotta, agree. I mean, I, of course. I, 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 I think agree. she's, it's a silver lining. I mean, I, I appreciate her perspective. But ultimately, if we're going to rehabilitate these schools, and like I said, I would, even if my son could get in, I would never send him there. Um, but I, I still have this, you know, like, wistful sort of, like, memory of Harvard. I would love Harvard to be what I think it used to be. And what it can be, be. yes. What it can be. I don't yes. want to give up on these institutions. I agree. But we need to remove the cancers. And um, I, I think that, yeah, I'm glad that she's here now. I'm glad that this has become, um, the, the, the cancer's been, it's, it's been exposed. But we need to take action now. And obviously not just at Harvard. I mean, Princeton's in horrible shape, too. All of these, I mean, it's, it's Stanford. It's, I mean, sure, you've seen what happened at Stanford Law. I think it was last year that, um, you know, I think it was, which incident? Yeah, <laughs> there's I mean, so many. The free speech one. one? The free speech. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and like the, the Ninth Circuit judges are just like horrified by like this is who we're. This, these are the clerks we have to like pick from. These are like the judges from you know our our, our our future jurists, people who don't allow free speech and who like you know want to shout down folks who disagree with them. Right. And it's it's just. I don't know. But anyway, I still have I still have hope and faith because I am a person of hope and faith that we can salvage these institutions. Um, I'd be curious to know, like when you talk to your, you know, your fellow alums, like who are like a year and a half out like you, what do they think about what's happening now? Mm. Do they support Claudine? Do they, are they seeing the same problems we we're seeing? I mean, if they are, that gives me even more hope. If they aren't, I mean, I, I don't know. Well, I was very careful with who I chose as my friends. And also, you know, it was kind of like a filter because I was starting sophomore year, I was very public. I was on Dennis's radio show. Oh, Dennis yeah. and I did a, did a, started a show out of my dorm room. So people knew oh, cool. what I thought and what I was up to. So that kind of weeded some people out, but, but also had the effect of, of, uh, bringing some great friends in. So among my friends, you know, we're all like, this is ridiculous. Cla- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Claudine's got to go. But interestingly, you know, I kind of look farther out and I still talk with some of my peers even if we're not close friends um and there's that same kind of resignation that I was talking about with like they don't want it they don't want to rock the boat you know it's it's this it's so um as I said it's so creepy it's like they have have, yes they've they've learned to suppress their opinions and like it's like okay I'm gonna wait I'm pro Claudine if the corpse pro Claudine but then if she resigns I'm gonna you know support it's like it's whichever way the wind blows yes. is where it'll go yes and uh interesting it's yeah. sad that at this age there are still so many so many of us like that but it goes beyond just my age it goes no, it on does. and on and on it's deeper so I'm curious how are you received among your former classmates your former colleagues you know at your old law firm I mean have they read the book 
Well, um, and what did they it's say? Been a, it's been a while since I've been in a law firm. Um, so most of my, my peers are in entertainment and you can right. probably what you can imagine. Is um, that, did I get it wrong? I said law firm. Is that? Yeah, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't re, I haven't been in a law firm in a long time. So right. it's, yeah. Um, uh, I worked in business affairs at I see. a, you know, major, major network. And as you said earlier, I since been working remotely where I, I have, you know, um, entertainment clients, studios, networks. Uh, I consult, you know, some writer producer clients, but that's my milieu. It's um, very progressive, um, and I would say that the bulk of my friends on we talk about friends, frenemies, on social media are in entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are from Princeton and Harvard, you know, that not in entertainment, but just you know, a lot fellow alums. But I would say that by and large, I am I am not received well. When I, I'm sure my friends don't even know this book exists. It's a completely different, it's not something, we're in completely different worlds and I don't even advertise this on Facebook, on my personal Facebook uh, page. So they don't even know about the book, but they know about the Monica who's in the book. They know about my thoughts because I'm pretty, pretty open about them on my, my Facebook page. And I have been, I think I've lost, not I wouldn't say I've been defriended by a lot of people. I've definitely been defriended by some folks. But um, just recently we noticed we didn't get a Christmas card from a good friend of our, was a good friend of ours we've been in touch with for many years. He was a colleague of mine um, at MTV Networks. And for the first time, you know, like my partner's like, this is weird, we didn't get a Christmas card. And then I realized they gave a Christmas Christmas card to someone else, else's house I went to. So clearly they sent cards this year, but... We weren't on the list. And, I, you know, I have been increasingly vocal about my, like you, about my feelings um, about COVID, mm. about I was going to ask, Black what Lives specifically Matter. have you said that you think caused um, the Christmas card uh, the Christmas card. to oh, not wow. arrive? I mean, it, there's been so many things. I would say, interesting, I think, um, I think COVID was probably, um, I think that was probably a bridge too far for a lot of people. Very early. Isn't the jury out on that though? Now, by no, now, no, yeah, no, I no. Bet. It's um, no. I don't think a lot of people are in the courtroom and like <laughs> listening to what the jury has to say. True. They um, hear the verdict. They re- they repeat yeah, the verdict. They if they yeah, like the verdict, hear, right. we hear the, we hear the jury jury is going to come in with this verdict. We're just leaving now, and they don't actually listen to what the jury says. Sean but, just said in my ear there are people still wearing masks. Still it's people true. wearing masks in their cars. In their cars. In their cars. Yeah. I mean, um, so what was oh, really God. interesting about COVID is that. Living in Montana, we had a different reality evolving very, very early on. With all the bigots. Without, no, all well, the anti-vaxxers. No, no, not like, there, our reality was, okay, so a state that's, Montana's about, it's the fourth largest state in the country. A lot of people don't realize Really? That. Wow. It's just maybe a couple of hundred, maybe a couple of thousand square the miles. The fourth largest? Yes, yeah, right under oh, California. Oh, you mean, you mean. No, in, sp- in terms of land. In terms I of thought space. you meant in population. No, no, wow. yeah. Oh my God, yeah. We've got big cities everywhere. <laughs> but we've got less than the population of Los Angeles, like maybe a third of the population of Los Angeles in a state the size of California, roughly. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to say is that incredibly spread out, we were social distancing long before right. other people were. Um, just before COVID is what I meant. So when the when the virus like my my partner like was on COVID literally the moment it hit was news was breaking out in China. She's like, I'm listening to this thing on NPR. This seems like it'd be a real thing. And I'm like, Really? I mean, what is it? It's all the way over in China. And she's like, No. 
pay attention to this. So only because of her, I started paying attention. Smart. Yeah. And because of her, you know, like before the lockdown started, she's like, I think we need to get some stuff from the store, you know, like stock up a little. Um, and I, I say all of this to make the point that we took it seriously at first. Um, we were we were scared. I mean, it was of a course, novel of virus. Course. Who in their right mind would have been course, scared? Of course, yes, but, yeah. But it didn't take us long to see that the reality that we were being that was being portrayed to us on TV every day by was the usual suspects: Fauci, Governor <laughs> Cuomo, and I forgot who's the lady with the scarf. The 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 Trumps. Doctor Burks. Doctor Bur- Burks. Yes. Oh. The Troika. It didn't take us long to see that that reality wasn't quite matching up with the reality that we were seeing on the ground. So we unlocked in Montana like six to eight weeks after the lockdown started. So by May, we were like living life pretty freely again. Oh my God, by May. By May, yeah, of 2020. <sighs> I mean, there were still some things that were like, you know, some social distancing. There were, you know, some people were still masking. Um, and I think the schools masked for like maybe the first three months of the year. But what we saw was that like... People weren't dying in the streets because, I mean, if COVID were truly as dangerous as we were told, people would be like, you know, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, not, of course, we would exactly. know we more would people. Yes. yes. But we would check the hospitalization rates like, you know, in, in Montana versus California and in our very conservative, um, uh, what was it, uh, Flathead Valley versus mm-hmm. Missoula, which is much more populous, populated and much more liberal. They took COVID very seriously the back with the um, masking. Mm-hmm. And we would notice that there wasn't a substantial difference in hospitalization rates and infection rates. And we're like, this is so strange. Why would a virus, it's like you're talking about, is a virus smart enough to know when it's right. in a certain location? <laughs> right. yep. um, so that was our first clue. And then I saw a Stanford study and a USC study that said, wait a minute, very early on, maybe like seven weeks into the pandemic, that we're told that the um, the, fa- the mortality rate is like, three or four percent but it's looking more like it's like maybe three tenths of a percent substantially lower substantially Mm -hmm. lower so i posted this on facebook and the blowback i got why are you minimizing this virus are you a murderer you know this is just it's you know why are you enabling murder don't you care about other people so i i think i lost a lot of friends you think it was covid mainly i think it was covid and then when the vaccine came along and i said you know don't see the need to get vaccinated because we don't have uh, pre-existing conditions. Our sons, we're healthy. Plus, we've had COVID. You know, then there were people who were like, oh, my God, you're an anti-vaxxer. One guy even accused me of killing Marianne on, on, on Gilligan's Island, Don Wells. She was one of the little Marianne, Ginger and Marianne. So she died during COVID. Um, <laughs> I knew Sean was going to roll no, his no, eyes. No. He always makes references, and I don't know that I read. Okay, I don't all right. You guys, that's a little pop culture you need to know about. So she's like Marianne on Gilligan's Island. She's like in her, I don't know, 80s or whatever. So she died during COVID. This guy, a friend of, friend of me, tagged me and said, oh. her, Marianne's death is on your hands. I mean, oh, that's how bad him. it was. That's how bad Sorry. it was. Like, I did, you know, that's one of the few friends I've defended. But yeah, I, I think it was like, you know, my... My positions on, you know... That makes like me COVID. so angry. Come on. I know. And, and he was a lawyer, by the way. There's a lawyer who's that immature. Oh, so, my gosh. So, okay, so you think it was COVID. Are there other takes that you I, I have think, been vocal about? I think I haven't earned any friends with my stance on the transgender or gender, gender ideology um, movement, shall we say? I mean, I've being gay, I've always had transgender friends. Um, I've always, like, I think been receptive and supportive of people who wanted to 
live alternative lifestyles or like just alternative identities. But, but the thing is, I've always been on the same page with back then in my day to date myself. They were called transsexuals and transvestites, people who, you know, they had a gender affirming surgery. They were transsexuals, mm-hmm. they were transgender, mm-hmm. and if they like to, you know, if they prefer to keep their, you know, uh, uh, factory parts anatomy. Right. But like to, you know, don other attire. They were transvestites. But they always knew that they were the sex they were born as. They might choose to present differently. But trans, Interesting. Trans, yes, transsexual, transvestite women never pretended that they were women. It was almost like just, it's like, I'm not going to say playing dress up. But they, they, they knew that they were trying, they were living a life that wasn't, a real a, a biological woman's life. They know would they, they call really themselves women. a woman. They, they, I don't think or they she really use call the pronouns. Women. They might use she, but they oh. wouldn't think that they were actually women. They wouldn't huh. think that they wouldn't imagine that they could get birth. They wouldn't refer to women as birthing persons. You know, there was this under. In other words, there was this under underlying acceptance of biological reality, <laughs> and that was respectful for biological women. You know, right. we didn't feel displaced. Right. Um, lesbians, we weren't. We weren't gaslighted into thinking that a man could retain a penis, you know, and present himself as a woman and, 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 and love other women and women and call himself a lesbian. We knew that a, whim, a lesbian has a uterus, has a vagina, has factory part breasts. You know, we knew this. And I, when I express this, um, anything reproaching this on Facebook or, you know, I, I was... I was greeted as like, you know, being transphobic. <laughs> so I, I you know, all of these things add up. And I think people get a sense of me as someone who's, you know, a troublemaker, not on the bandwagon. I'm conservative. I'm an enabler of white supremacy. I'm part of the establishment, whatever the establishment is now. So long story short, no, I, I don't think that um, I don't think that I have a lot of close friends now in my um, the 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 my original friend circle from college and law school. My my friend circle is narrow. It's shrinking. It's mm-hmm. becoming like a, a puddle, and um, it's becoming it's getting to be a lonely place. But I'm making new friends like like you. I mean that's maybe let, let's just say my friend circle is changing. You know, it's interesting you say that because I as I said to you, you know, when I was really public in college and clearly continue. To, to do so, you know, it's it's had a way of shifting my my friendships. Yeah. But I have found that there's such a camaraderie between people like us who think the same way. The heterodox thinkers. Yes, the heterodox, the, the yes. heretics. Which, the which heretics. Is, which is, by the way, so funny because everything that you were just saying and everything that I say was accepted as totally mainstream and apolitical like 10, 10 to 15 years ago. Yeah. I mean, saying that there are only two genders you know, was like, was, was the least controversial statement. Following the science. I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, we need border protection. I say that all the time. I say, you know, I'm, I'm proud to call myself conservative, but like, I don't really think what I have to say is particularly conservative. I just think it's, I don't even think it's that political. That's right. No, it shouldn't be. Right. But putting that aside, you know, I, I have found, I mean, my, my best friend is Dennis Prager, who's 75 years old and his wife, who's 60 years old. You know, I, you, and your partner are new friends. Oh, Seriously, you. you are. And I, I have all. I mean, one of Dennis's friends. His name is Robert Florzak. He's an he's an artist. He's been on this show before. We he sat right there and we looked at that screen and we looked. I said, "What are five paintings that everyone should know about?" And he came on. And he, you know, uh, talked about those. He's one of my best friends. 
I have I have all of these truly you know, diverse friends. Yes, truly diverse. Yeah. And I just it's because we when we find people like each other who get it and who have been maligned unfairly, you know, and who have a sense of appreciation and love for this country. Yes. It's it's this great it's this great draw that we have and I'm just of the philosophy in life that I just want to like collect great people. I don't care if they're young, old, black, white, Hispanic, you know, I don't care as long as they they have my values. They're my friends. Well, that's. I'm, that's thank you so much for bringing that up because I want to be around people who love this country, and that sounds like yes. that sounds really conservative. That sounds like something How an old white man would say. But the older I get, the more I. I mean, I think there's so much that we take. We've always taken for granted about what this country is, what it represents, what it means to to be here. But the older I get, the more I respect those old dead white guys who like created the ultimate startup, starting up a country from scratch, trying to, like, you know, create bylaws, right, mm-hmm. in the form of a constitution, trying to game every possible scenario for how to avoid the implosion of their new company, their country. And they did a pretty good job. And I look at what we've withstood, civil wars, you know, Spanish flus, depressions, global wars, un- the civil rights movement, Yep. We've, the women's movement. We've on 9-11. 9-11. We have withstood so much, and it's because... Pearl Harbor. Yeah. An attack on our... It's because we have the bones of something really, really special. A free society with free speech. That's what's given us everything. All of the freedoms that's allowed my mother, who literally, I kid you not, in Memphis, she was picking cotton to make spare change. Not as a slave, but just because... She couldn't get hired like at a you know a lunch counter when she was a kid in the fifties. She picked cotton with her parents to make money, you know, for her, that was her spending money. And now looking at me sitting here with you, and you know, like I'm living a life as a as a as a lawyer in Montana, you know, with a bunch of white people um, who are supposedly so different from me. But this is this is how far we've come, and this is only possible in a country with the bones, the constitutional yes. bones that we have. It's not possible in Sierra Leone. It's not possible possible in Russia. I, you know, it's not even possible in, in Canada. Why? Because they don't have a constitution that allows people to speak as freely as we do. So, and, and, and if you don't have a constitution that allows people to speak freely, then you wonder what would have happened to Martin Luther King. You know, if, if you can't, a lot of people think that free speech is now this sort of like, it's the, it's the weapon of of white supremacy. It's the weapon of racism. Princeton. Princeton Your alma mater yes, said my, so. It's all, I mean, it's disgusting. But they forget what this weapon of white supremacy has done for people of color. Imagine <laughs> totally. Martin Luther King staging, you know, the Selma, the, 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 the sit-ins and the, 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 the marches and just all of these wonderful, wonderful, but incredibly impactful events never would have happened if we didn't have the First Amendment. Never would have. Um, so anyway, the older I get, the more I, I believe in these values. And I think it's so important, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, the people who seem to cherish these values most now aren't, aren't privileged white people. When I say the privileged white people, I'm talking about the people who come from um, these elite institutions right. like Harvard. Yeah. No, I hear you. The true privileged. The people who really cherish what America means, a lot of times... First generation Americans. Yep. Second, maybe second generation Americans, but mm-hmm. a lot of the immigrants who've come from countries that didn't have 
any of these, the, the constitutional bones that we have, and they, they know what authoritarian looks like, authoritarianism looks like. They know what it smells like when it's coming. They see the signs, and they're trying to warn us. And uh, a lot of them are, you know, a lot of the people, if you really want to know what's going on in this country and what people are talking about, sit down with an Grab an Uber driver in New York. Oh, totally. Or L.A. Totally. And nine times out of ten, they're going to be people who just, who, you know, they've only been here a few years. And they came because they fought to get here through the front door, not the back door. And they respect what this country is. And they're concerned about what's happening to it. You know, I had someone write in to me. And by the way, I just want to say as a note, we, we're going to talk about fair next because oh, okay. we have limited right. time. Okay, limited and time. I, I don't want to miss talking yes. about that. But I'll just tell you quickly that there's someone in a community college student who wrote in to me who listens to this show. And she wrote this email that really saddened me. And she said, Julie, I'm, I'm really lonely. And I can't, you know, so many people I go to college with, they're so woke and everywhere I turn, it's like pronouns and racism and this and that. And people hate America. And I just so wish that she could be sitting here having this conversation with us because I feel that sometimes too. And I'm so blessed to be surrounded by a lot of people who think like I do, but the noise is so loud out there that we forget like this conversation this is America. The yes. conversation with the Uber driver. You know, there are people like us out there who are Silent grateful. Majority. Yes. And so just find your Monica's, everybody. They're, you know, seriously, and they're out there and just, and that's why I'm friends with, with 75-year-old men, you know, like I'm 32-year-old Danish woman who's concerned. Like I have all these kind of hodgepodge yeah. people of friends, but we all have these values. I just want to say to everyone out there. They're there. Yes. You just got to look of us than a little you bit. Think. We're yes. not alone. So let's talk about FAIR. So uh, FAIR is an organization that I joined about a year and a half ago, and it was started about, I guess, about um, shortly after Black Lives Matter picked up steam in, uh, in the wake of George Floyd's death. And by the way, it stands for the Foundation Against Intolerance, Intolerance and, and Racism. Yes, yep. yes. And so what we in FAIR are, are dedicated to, it's a multidisciplinary organization, but we're dedicated to fulfilling Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision. And it's a vision that I think a lot of people have just, he's fallen out of favor, and I'll just be frank, in the last it's crazy, know, 10 years. It's crazy, People it? have forgotten that the man is synonymous with the civil rights movement, yet we don't talk about him anymore. But Martin Luther King believed in equality, not equity. And we in FAIR are firmly against intolerance and racism. But we want to, we want to eliminate these toxic influences with dignity and compassion and mutual respect for all human beings, all Americans, regardless of mutable or immutable characteristics. So in other words, not just diversity for black people or transgender people or brown people, but, but equality for everyone, an equality that means making the table bigger so we can add chairs, not like, you know, oh, you get to sit at the table, but it means someone else has to leave which is essentially what equity is. Equity right. is equality of outcome. It's not equality of opportunity. So FAIR is an organization that actively works to create this kind of America, diversity with dignity and equality um, and without division. And we do that with uh, several pillars, FAIR and legal. We represent people like uh, Tavia Lee, who is a uh, guest on Timeless guest, recently. Guest who was uh, a black woman, ironically, who was dismissed because she was standing up for the rights of her Jewish students at her community college and wanted to speak free, freely and was 
you know, um, I, I just encouraging diversity of perspective. And that, of course, is now a semblance of white supremacy. Uh, fair in the arts, speaking up for um, artists who are discriminated against with uh, discriminatory hiring practices. You know, I'm, your guests may or may not be aware of this, but increasingly in Hollywood and in other branches of arts and inter- entertainment, artists are being selected uh, and hired based solely on the color of their skin. So, you know, a, an actor might be, or excuse me, a costume designer might be selected or even um, only offered uh, a position because they're black or because they're non-binary. Um, and sometimes positions are openly advertised that way, which is clearly a Title VI violation, but people don't care about this anymore. You um, mean of the civil right, Title VI yeah, of the exactly, Civil Rights Act? Yes, yeah. exactly. So there are a lot of like open, just patently illegal practices that are happening in all aspects of our society, and they're not being addressed. And so FAIR steps into this space, and we, you know, we're actively pursuing litigation. Um, FAIR in medicine, we advocate... And you talked about COVID, like, does the science really make sense behind COVID? Well, we advocate for doctors who practice um, ethical, evidence-based science. Um, So that's what we are. Real science. Real science, (laughs) not like manufactured science or distorted science. Uh, So, yeah, that's what we do. And um, we're firmly committed to it. And our, our movement is growing. Well, God bless you. I, I recently had on, as you said, Tabia, or is it Tabia? It's Tabia Lee. Tabia. Okay, good. Yes. Tabia Lee, who was a DEI director at De Anza Community College yes. in Cupertino, California, as you say, was fired for standing up for Jewish students, yes. for being pro-free speech. How controversial. And it was so cool to learn that she was working with you. And you know, yes, Tabia, or Dr. Lee, excuse me, yes. and I had a very interesting conversation about the way that words have been co-opted and you know diversity for instance and we've been doing it throughout this interview you know we've been saying true diversity yeah true science being def- re- words are being redefined they're being redefined yes. and and now you have to put a true in front of it in order for the the real you know definition of the word to to come across and so i have to tell you when i when i read the name of your foundation against intolerance and racism it's such a shame, but I hear those words now, and I don't think about real intolerance and real re- racism. Yeah. I think about like the w- the way that these the words have come yeah. to me. I think of microaggressions. Yes. I think of you know misgendering someone. But but you are what I love about fair is that you're truly standing up for the. I'm not. I'm not going to say true meaning of these words. We're for reclaiming the meaning, them. We're reclaiming yes, the reclaiming authentic, them. Authentic. And that's yeah. what Dr. Lee said because I. I said to her. I said, you know, we read aloud her title at Danza, and it was like yes. Director of Social Justice, uh, Equality, and Inclusion. Um, I think inclusion. Yes. yes. And I said, you know, d- when you were applying to this job, didn't that didn't that job title kind of stick out to you as as something that would be you know a woke person's position? Right. And she said no. She said. I look at those words and I, yeah. re- I really believe in the true meaning of them. Right. And so I'm just, I'm so glad that you're reclaiming them. Yes. It's amazing that we even have to, to do that, reclaim. But, but I know that you are really standing up against true intolerance and true racism. Absolutely. In and your work. Absolutely. That's exactly what we're doing. Thank you for saying that. And it's a very good point. <laughs> I can't believe that we're out of time. It's, it's gone by really? so fast. Oh. But I know that you you said at the beginning that you only do these yearly trips now to Los Angeles, but we're going to have to put in the calendar next year. We will. This uh, 
this I'm, another part three. I'd love to come back because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of stuff coming. Oh, to, my I gosh. expect 2024 to be like a, a bumpy ride, busy, bumpy, and um, eye-opening. I think yeah. that I think that we're in the midst of an awakening. Right? Yes, and I think that it's just going to it's it's just going to accelerate. I hope I expect so. A lot of big things and a lot of awakening in 2024. I think October 7th changed things. Oh, totally. I think totally a, I think a lot of people I've noticed a lot, especially a lot of my Jewish liberal friends, oh, yeah. are kind of going, huh. Yeah. Yeah, this is this DEI stuff is is pretty bad. I often say that you can't you can't change minds overnight. And mm-hmm. sometimes I'll have conversations with uh people who disagree with me and my partner like will ask me, "Well, do you think you made any headway? Do you think you changed a mind? Do you think they're going to think, you know, the are they still looking at this issue the same way they were before you sat down and talked to them?" I'm like, "It doesn't matter. What you want to do is plant seeds because yes. people aren't necessarily ready to hear your message." I mean, but think about it. Could you have any conversation with anyone? I mean, as an intelligent person, you sit down with them and you're like, you walk away. I'm like, oh, my mind's changed. No, that's not the way it works with anyone, intelligent or otherwise. It's a process. And you plant the seed and then you wait for the conditions to, the right conditions to unfold, whether the sunshine of of an event or uh, watering from another person, you know, when people are directly uh, affected by something like, you know, Bill Ackman and others have been affected by what's happening at Harvard. And then that's when the seed starts to bear shoots, and then things happen. But we should not expect that, because we didn't get to this place overnight. This has been decades of, like, conditioning. The of way excellent people sheep. Of excellent <laughs> sheep. So it's going to have to be a deconditioning and a deprogramming process, and we have to be patient. Yeah. We cannot be impatient with this process. Thank you so much again for your time. It's oh. so great to see you. I'm so honored to have you oh, as a new friend. To be here. Oh. And, and as a reminder to everyone, please get this book. I would say it's a Christmas gift, but we're a little late for that. New Year's gift. Or maybe we're very early, you know? <laughs> Start planning for next year, The Illusion of Division. Thanks again, Monica. Thank you, Julie. And thanks to all of you so much for listening. I'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.